Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from Physio Room, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're going to explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. What's going on, guys? Dr. Andrew Fix back for another episode here on The Code, sitting inside of Lion's Den, Strength, Mobility, Performance with my buddy Tristan Mitchell. He is one of the two owners here, and you guys have heard him on this podcast before. So Tristan, thanks for joining me again for another episode, man. Yeah, absolutely. And so last time that you were on this show, we talked about Lion's Den. We talked kind of about your background, you know, how you got into running, how you got into training and, you know, why you decided to open a facility of your own. But even though we did that on that previous episode, would you do me a favor and just kind of give a real brief introduction of yourself again, in case people didn't listen to that. And then we will dive in deeper on running, strength training, and we'll get into it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So my background, running is kind of my passion from a performance standpoint. Uh, and I've been running marathons now since I was 20 years old, which is, you know, 17 years ago somehow now. So I've um, been doing a decent amount of running and I've run 24 marathons. So that's kind of been kind of the pursuit from a from a performance standpoint, um, and it kind of drew me into the fitness space um, as far as you know my profession was concerned. And so I got a job over at a gym not too far away from here, started kind of at the ground floor there, and eventually became a trainer, trained there for many years uh, before I left to open my own thing um, with uh, with my wife. So She's the, uh, you know, we all joke around here, but she's the, she's the, she's the real boss around here. I just want to, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, you know, so we've now, we've, you know, Lions Den has now been in existence for almost come, we're coming up to five years, which is pretty crazy. So some ups and downs over the years and obviously COVID was weird, but, uh, we're still here and that's awesome. So yeah, in a nutshell, I'd say running kind of led me to training as a profession and uh you know and that eventually led me to to here yeah and you know i've been fortunate to um have kind of met you like halfway mm -hmm. through that lion's den journey mm -hmm. we're closing in on five years it's basically been two and a half that i have lived here in the denver area mm -hmm. and um and been been here inside the gym and as soon as you you know you and i had this running thing in common um, though I have not run 24 marathons, I've run exactly zero marathons, as a matter of fact, um, but a couple halves and, and shorter races. But uh, a passion of yours has pretty much turned into like a, you know, a fuel for your business, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you you enjoy running, but you also end up working with and enjoy working with a lot of running athletes in your training business. So when when was it that you started to see your, you know, your like clientele from a personal training coaching perspective start to take the shape of like I'm working with a lot of people that are just like me like mm -hmm. like to do the same thing that I do I mean I would say honestly really kind of right out of the gate um I think you know as I started you know when I started personal training um you know the first I'd say you know by the time I had kind of a dozen regular clients 
a decent percentage of them were some sort of endurance-based athlete. Um, a lot of them actually early on were triathletes. There was a pretty strong community of, uh, of triathletes at the gym that I used to work at. Yeah. And um, so some of them I would work with very directly as their trainer and others more kind of indirectly as just, you know, meeting and running with them, um, you know, becoming friends with a lot of those guys, yeah. which then kind of opened doors to other people. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, honestly, I mean, to answer your question early on, um, and then now, obviously, I'm very fortunate to get to work with a local high school here. Um, you and I both work with a lot of those young athletes. Uh, my niece is obviously a very high level uh, high school runner and going on to run division one and her and, you know, beginning to work with her. And then obviously with my friend, Simon Scorsia, who you've had on the podcast and mm-hmm. he and I over the years have worked with uh, adult clientele from a marathon standpoint. So we've, tr- you know, done training programs for, for, uh, kind of your recreational runners to more competitive adult runners to, um, you know, kind of jointly working together in different capacities with some of the high school or with the high school program that we are both uh, affiliated with over at Rapo. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think early on, and I think it's kind of been a constant, it's never been like all of my clientele though. And it's honestly never been something that I wanted to be all of my clients. Sure. Like I've never wanted to just solely be a running coach and that's it you know i only work with runners i love working with runners but i also like working with people who aren't runners yeah i like working with people who are you know not athletes um so you know it's interesting that you say that because i think uh i think i have a lot of similarities to what you just said where when i was in high school and i was starting to you know think about what i wanted to do Mm -hmm. um and then i started going down this path of oh i'm going to go into physical therapy school kind of fueled by you know my own injury uh, and then my dad going through some shoulder stuff and I got to do some shadowing with his physical therapist. And I always had this, you know, thought that I wanted to work in a sports setting. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be like the physical therapist for a professional sports team. Mm-hmm. And then while I was going through physical therapy school on my internships and stuff, I started to realize that I didn't only enjoy working with athletes. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed working with all different types of people. And quite frankly, Athletes are a little bit of a pain to work with sometimes because they're very high demanding, like high demand clientele. Like they're very particular, very needy in certain situations. Um, There's a little bit more back end work sometimes Mm -hmm. that goes into working with higher level athletes. Mm -hmm. And then I started to, you know, learn that a lot of times the opportunities that you get are way less about what you know and way more about who you know. Mm -hmm. Most of the providers that are working for these like elite clubs and teams and stuff. Though they may be brilliant individuals, a lot of times they got that opportunity because of a connection that they had, not just because of the skill set that they have. And I started to find out from some people that had worked in that setting that, man, that is like really demanding and really like owns your life. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to, you know, build a life, put down roots, build a family while working in one of those environments. Mm -hmm. And I started to find that like what I thought my professional goals were. Didn't match up with what my life goals were. Mm-hmm. And um, so I sort of switched gears, and that's how I wound up going down the path for an orthopedic residency out of school instead of a sports residency mm-hmm. because I knew I didn't want to just work with athletes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that sort of like changed the trajectory of my career. And 
quite frankly, if I would would have gone that sports residency route, we probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. Yeah, totally. Uh, but speaking of Simon, I asked him this question. Well, I asked him a question that I'll ask you in a second, but you've run 24 marathons. Mm -hmm. uh, when was your first one? Mm -hmm. And when was your most, most recent one? Mm -hmm. And then the question I asked him was like, what race or what city or whatever, like what was your favorite one? Mm -hmm. So my first one was in 2006, Denver Marathon. Mm -hmm. um, I was 20 years old. I was about a month away from turning 21. And I, you know, it's funny, I try to go back and remember you know, kind of that whole process leading up to my first marathon. And I don't really remember it at all. Um, as far as like what my mindset was, what my training looked like. I honestly don't remember at all what my training looked like. I think I know that I was probably running somewhere in the vicinity of like 40 to 50 miles a week. Um, cause it was some years until I kind of really kind of realized that I needed to get well above 50 miles a week, um, to run the kind of times that I was wanting to run. Yeah. Um, so I ran that in, in 2006, you know, there's a very kind of, you know, interesting story around my first marathon. Cause I was 20 and not knowing what I was doing and really, you know, did not set myself up for success, uh, the night before went out for dinner at a local pizza place that I loved, went to an ice cream, uh, shop nearby and had a bunch of ice cream. And I was kind of like, just in this mindset of. I am going to go burn a ton of calories tomorrow and I need a lot of calories to fuel that. Not really kind of thinking at all where those calories were coming from, sure. yeah. you know, being 20 years old. Um, I had run, uh, you know, I had run uh, numerous half marathons at that point. Um, and I had gone under one, I had gone, I don't know what my half marathon PR was at the time, but I know it was under 130. Going into the race, I had no like strong time goal, I remember. But I knew that I could like run reasonably fast just through kind of local shorter races. Um, so going out there, you know, I, I kind of, you know, didn't have, didn't have a huge amount of direction. Um, my dad is a, uh, marathoner, former marathoner. He's run, uh, he's run, I think over a dozen or so, uh, marathons and he had a PR of 316. Uh, or still has a PR of 316, which I, you know, was, I think probably in my head thinking like, okay, I want to try to take that down. Got to beat dad. Um, and get out there. The, it, well, the morning of, I realized that my stomach was not in great shape because of the decisions that I made the night before. Uh, my dad kind of had a laugh at the fact that I had a bunch of ice cream, not really connecting the obvious dots of, you know, eating a bunch of dairy prior to going and running, you know, first thing in the morning. So uh, needless to say, I had to take some bathroom breaks throughout that marathon. I ended up hitting, uh, I, I, it was four, four bathroom breaks, I think, through that marathon. Uh, yeah. And kind of comically, my, my, my old man was on a bike for the entire race, basically, and he would like ride ahead. He loves to tell the story, but he would like literally ride ahead. So um, Yeah, like make sure he could like reserve a door for me, essentially. You know, and I'd be in and out as quickly as I could. And I remember the last one, uh, in the last one I exit, my dad kind of laughs and he's like, well, you know, this, this certainly has been entertaining today. And I'm like, God. and he's like, <laughs> and he makes some comment, you know, to the effect of the kind of household marathon time was going to be safe, uh, for at least one more year. And, uh, I end up running a 319 and I remember thinking, well, that was a total disaster. And Not bad with four bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it definitely could have been slower. Um, you know, and I and and I think, you know, who knows what I could have run had I 
been more prepared. But anyway, it motivated me to come back the next year. So in 2007, I come back. I was in better shape. I had a much better mindset. I had, I really, you know, went into that race with a very definitive goal of sub three hours. We had pouring rain, about 40 degrees. It was a classic kind of October day in Denver where it was, you know, cold, sleeting rain, but not cold enough to turn it over to snow, which would have been dramatically better because you were so wet. Yep. And it was a total slog. I remember that marathon way more than I remember my first one. And I remember crossing the line. I ran 253 and change. And I crossed the line and I got handed a water bottle and I literally could not open, couldn't unscrew the little plastic water bottle um, because my hands and arms were so numb. And I remember just tears going down my face and not really realizing why or like not like really kind of consciously knowing why I was crying. Mm -hmm. But I just there was a bit of there was a sense of kind of euphoria with the accomplishment of that marathon. The combination of the elements, um, the weather that we battled and the time that I ran was was, you know, kind of all you know, kind of all combined to a very emotional moment for me. And mm-hmm. at the time I was 21, so about a month away from turning 22. So it was a year later, it was like those races were in October. And then, you know, that was it, man. Like after that, I realized that I was hooked and that I really liked marathons. Um, and um, I ran, you know, like I said, another 22. I've never run slower than that second one. So I've run some low 250s. But then, you know, I've now worked my way down to 236 and change at Chicago in 2019. Um, and that story, you know, that was that was an interesting race. And I was 33. That was 2019. That was my last marathon. And, you know, that race was that race was very meaningful to me because my prior PR was a 237.09. And I had run it at my 13th marathon at Denver. Mm. In 2000 and 2012, was it 2013? Something quite quite a few years earlier. Sure, yeah. So and ten years, yeah, basically. Yeah. Right? So I so I went. I or went ten well, marathons. I mean, yeah, it was ten marathons. Yeah, it was ten marathons, and and I remember, you know, at the time when I ran that two thirty seven oh nine, I ran it at Denver, and honestly, if you if you compare the two races, sure, the Denver race is probably. You know, not probably the Denver race is the better of the two races because my my the best time at yeah, elevation at elevation and yeah. the course was much more difficult than Chicago. So you know, the Denver race was probably the better of the two races, but I think at the time I did not view it as my ceiling. I viewed it as being a time that I would continue to improve upon, and then my subsequent marathons, I ran, I proceeded to run three more two thirty sevens all slower than that one, but 237 and some seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran uh, a couple 238s. I ran 239s. Um, so I got very close, but yeah. I just never could beat that time. And that was really frustrating. Um, yeah. And also kind of eye-opening in the sense that unless something dramatically was going to change about, you know, at that time, you know, at this point now, I'm running, you know, 75 to 95 miles a week, depending on the marathon. You know, I'm a lot more by the time I'm to Chicago, especially um, that last marathon, I am way more savvy from a training standpoint, have far more understanding of, of, you know, of just how our bodies work and, you know, and, and what I need to be doing from a training standpoint. 
you know, so so to kind of know that I was gaining knowledge and experience, but not being able to run a faster time was 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 a tough pill to swallow. And I had numerous good races, um, but just couldn't quite get there. And you know, honestly, I think you know, for me, you know, I race at one hundred and seventy to one hundred and seventy five pounds, right? So sure. I'm, I, I think ultimately. 170 to 175 pound body can only run so fast, you know, like over an extended period. Like at some point, you know, I think as I look around, I see the guys that I am running, you know, racing against or, or, or shoulder to shoulder to, you know, a lot of them are a lot smaller than me. Right. And, and so I'm like, okay, if I'm going to get considerably faster, you know, weight loss is going to need to be part of this. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, it kind of comes back to just like, what am I doing this for? You know, like how much is like the pursuit of trying to lose, you know, 10, you know, 10, 12, 15 pounds really worth it for me yeah. from a long-term perspective. And so I just never, you know, I, I had some races where I got down to mid one sixties. I remember, and I had good days there, but nothing, you know, again, nothing faster. And, you know, eventually Chicago in 2019, I finally run a two thirty six fifty one. So I, I finally beat that. Oh, nine. And it was very emotionally meaningful for me. I raced at about 173 pounds at that. I was working my tail off that year of 2019. Um, Lions Den was in a particular situation where I was needing to train a lot or as much as I possibly could from a work standpoint. Sure. Um, yeah. So I was I was probably had more training sessions per week than any year that I've ever trained yeah. um, in that year. And I ran, you know, somewhere between, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, I had uh, lean up to a marathon. It was like 10 weeks of 80 plus mile weeks with three or four 90 plus mile weeks. Um, and I knew I had a good training block and mm-hmm. I knew I was in good shape and I was confident going into race day. Um, and that marathon was a bit of a, was a bit of a slugfest because it didn't go, it didn't come to me as not easy, but it didn't come to me as comfortably as I thought it would for sure, the yeah. first half. Um, over the years, I have focused on negative splitting the marathon. That was something, you know, really that Simon, when he and I first became friends many, many years ago, and by that point, maybe I had run a half dozen marathons or so, you know, that he had really talked to me about kind of the the, the concept of negative splitting. And I had had a terrible day. I don't know what year it was, but I had a terrible Denver marathon where I went out it was the last marathon I know where I only was running about 50 to 55 miles a week for training. Before you bumped your volume. Yes, before I jumped, bumped my volume up. And um, anyway, long story short, I went out and I wanted a sub 245. Mm-hmm. And I remember running at that somewhere around that pace through the first half, you know, long, essentially blowing up and holding on to like a 248 or 249 or something like that. Um, but I just remember being in total pain the last like, you know, six miles, I'm slowing down mile over mile. I know I'm getting chased. Like I'm getting, you know, like, and, and, and I, you know, at that point really prided myself about not getting past, you know, especially, you know, after a certain point in a marathon. Um, And I was able to hold off the guys behind me, but it was very frustrating. I think I finished, I think I finished like maybe, I don't know, eight place, something, seven, eight place. But anyway, point being is after that marathon, I remember, Simon and I ought to run having a conversation and and him talking about negative splitting and me realizing that that just made a lot of sense. And as I, as I started to increase my volume going into some subsequent races after that and really starting to execute on the negative split, 
And then the first time that I went, the first 237 I ran was actually a Colfax marathon um, where I had a massive negative split. I ran 237.30. 30 there, I believe, or 33. Can't remember one of the two. I ran, I ran a really good race that race and I yeah. ran a huge negative split. And I remember just passing tons of people in the second half, loving that feeling, loving that feeling of flying at the end of the race. And that might have been, you know, maybe around marathon nine, 10, somewhere in there. So, you know, really kind of learning how to negative split races was was huge. And, you know, ever since ever since then, I've, you know, that's something I've really worked at in the marathon and prided myself on. So fast forward 2019 Chicago, I come through halfway um, and I realized that I am nowhere near PR pace. Um, I think I ran like a, a high 119 or something like that. So I had a lot of work to do in the second half. Um, and, you know, I really get into the mindset. I go into the races, go into marathons, really with the mindset of the first half as an extended warm up. So, you know, the idea, essentially I'm running, you know, right around a six minute mile, you know, that, that. 236 equates to a 559 average. So, you know, I'm I'm in that mindset of going out in the vicinity of that pace, but I don't want to be faster than it through the first half. And I honestly don't really want to be right at it through the first half. Yeah, I want to be a lot. I want to be like plus five to me. 10 seconds is a little bit more than I feel comfortable with, but like five to eight seconds, maybe. A yeah. Lot. I definitely had a couple miles where I was more than you know, I think I had a couple maybe where I got into double digits, maybe 610, 611 pace or split. But most of them stayed in that kind of like 605 to 608 range. And it just wasn't coming as easy as I hoped it would. Yeah. But over the years, I feel like I've also kind of cultivated a like a mindset of being able to dig, you know, and just, you know, kind of, you know, I always the way I always got like to think about it is like having these like things that I can draw upon to elicit an adrenaline response. Um, something that just fires me up. Mm -hmm. And and I save these things for the second half of a marathon. Things that like, if I think about them when I'm sitting here, we'll kind of like get, get the hair standing up on end kind of thing. Things that get me pumped up. And so I hit that second half and I go to that place, you know, right away. Um, and I try to find a rhythm and I did, um, and, you know, not to belabor the story any longer, but got into a good rhythm and, uh, and chased down a PR and crossed that line and was immensely happy. Um, at the time it was an 18 second PR, it was two, three, six, 51. Um, but those 18 seconds were about as sweet as they could be for me because, mm -hmm. uh, finally breaking that two, three, seven or nine. You know, like I said, it was it was meaningful. So, so that was my last marathon. And you asked me what my favorite marathon yeah, was. Yeah, like what was your favorite race? What was your favorite course? I would say my favorite. So I've run I've run quite a bit of marathons outside of Colorado. I've run a lot of marathons. I've run many. I've run Denver and Colfax Marathon many many times. Um, and then I've run Phoenix a couple times. I've run Vancouver. I've run Toronto. I've run Somehow I got talked into running uh, Des Moines. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Simon, for that one. Now, Des Moines was actually super fun. But um, so I ran Des Moines. I've run Chicago. I've run Boston. I've run Berlin. So I've run a decent amount of marathons kind of outside of Colorado. Yeah. You know, honestly, both the Canadian marathons that I've run, Vancouver and Toronto, were both fantastic races. And the courses were amazing. Um, the race that I like to, that I often think of as kind of having the most, fun 
was probably 2014 Vancouver Marathon. Um, I ran it with a friend of mine and training partner, gentleman by the name of Kevin Ellis. And, and he and I ran, you know, basically 22 miles of that race together and, and really worked together throughout the entire marathon. He leading one mile, me leading another mile. Yeah. And just the kind of teamwork of that, of those 22 miles made for an unbelievably fun marathon. So that one, that one was, that one was really, that one's really high up there. Um, Berlin would be high up there, you know, so those, I'd say those are probably yeah. course wise, probably course wise. I'd have to say Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, Berlin was just really, was really cool and a very special race too. Um, and another one of my two thirty sevens. that was actually a day where if I look back, I think that actually I, I've also run San Diego marathon twice. I had one race at San Diego and then that race at Berlin in 2017. I would argue that those, I think San Diego was 2013. I think those were probably the two marathons that I went into where I felt like I was the fastest I've ever been. Yeah. But just couldn't quite execute on the day. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, how you answered that question is probably how I would answer it too. It's not just quite as simple. When you really love something and you really, you know, it's part of your life, it's hard to just say, this is my favorite one. Yeah. It's like, well, if I rank my favorite courses, yeah. they're in this order, but my favorite cities are in this order. Yeah. And oh my, you know, how the whole experience went is in this order. So yeah. and um, I'm very partial to the Denver Marathon, which is now gone, unfortunately. But that race was fantastic mm -hmm. um, and was a great course and hit all, you know, hit three of the major city parks. It was just a really, really cool race. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, for reasons that, I only know of through the kind of the rumor mill, but you know, apparently for whatever reason, the city just didn't want to host it anymore. Um, yeah. So there's no longer that race, but that was an awesome race as well. So yeah, I mean, like you said, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things. It's hard to like pick out one. Um, I've got a lot of different memories from, you know, all of them and some, you know, very few of them are kind of like, were like bad race days. Yeah, sure. But I definitely had, I definitely had some. Yeah. And, and, you know, running, running races has obviously been like a huge part of my life. Uh, the practice that I actually used to work for, it is kind of cool employee uh, activity kind of incentive mm -hmm. where where what they had was you could sign up for up to five races a year yep. for up to $100 per race. Yep. That would be reimbursed to you if you took a photo of yourself with a company T-shirt, oh, cool, yeah. right? So, um, but of course, you know, the, the primary like company T-shirt that you had was like a cotton T-shirt like I'm wearing now. Yep. So what I would always do, because I would never be caught dead like running a race in this, right? So uncomfortable, you get soaked in sweat, is uh, I would never wear that shirt for the race. Yeah. I would take a photo right beforehand, take that shirt off, boom, right in front of the starting line. And then then I would run uh, run the race in like more of a singlet type of top. Mm -hmm. But most of my running experience has come more in like track meet styles, mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, I was a cross country runner in middle school where I would go straight from cross country practice after school, then to out of the school system football practice. Mm -hmm. My parents were just shuttling me around. But then once high school and college got going, it was like track season and track meets where most of my running. And then it wasn't until after college, I started running more 5Ks, 10Ks. And really I've run three half marathons, but I've only run two half marathon races because mm -hmm. of COVID one was canceled and I ended up doing a time trial which that's where the PR is. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting you bring up this converse or this topic of uh, negative splitting, mm -hmm. because though in a much different context than a marathon, uh, I think that's something that a lot of 
runners struggle with is going out too hard mm-hmm. and not being able to close their race. Dude, so many. But that was something that, you know, I probably still deal with now. Like that half marathon time trial I ran where my wife, Erin, was, she was riding a bike next to me, holding a water bottle in a backpack, playing yep. some music. Yep. I went out faster than what I was hoping to, mm-hmm. like, because I was just kind of looking at my watch, but I was just kind of running. Yeah. Went out about 15 seconds per mile faster than my goal was. Yep. And then slowed down. But then around mile 11, started paying for that. Yep. And the very last mile of the 13.1 was my slowest mile. Yep. And I, you know, surpassed my goal. But the last 30 minutes of that was really uncomfortable. Yep. The last third of that of that run. But I even dealt with that in high school and in college in the 800 meter that was probably one of the races that i ran the most i ran a lot of 400 uh four by 400 relays where you don't really have that negative splitting piece but i ran a lot of open 800s mm-hmm. and when i finally started to get better and drop my 800 meter time was when i slowed down my first 400 meter split of my 800 mm-hmm. because there were some races where i would go out in like a 56 second 400, mm-hmm. but then I would just die yep. at the end of the race. Yep. And uh, so I'm talking with my coach and whatnot. And what we decided to do was bring my first 400 meters time down, yep. run a little bit slower, yep. like save a little bit in the tank so that you can close harder. And I remember when I finally was able to just like put the governor on just a little bit, I started to see my PRs drop and drop and drop yep. from, you know, I think a 201 in high school to a 156 in, in college. And, um, and that was like, you know, kind of interesting. It's like slow down to speed up basically. Right. Otherwise you're just, you're blowing your entire energy too much too soon. What do you think, I guess, was like, what was the hardest part for you Mm -hmm. in that process of like learning how to control what you're doing in the first half of the race so that you could do that negative split? Mm -hmm. Cause you know, like conceptually it doesn't seem hard Well, you're following your watch and whatnot, but you know, it takes a lot of mental effort if you are just like totally locked into your watch the entire time when you're running you don't want to be looking at your watch every two minutes yeah so what do you think was like the challenge for you to to learn that how to do that yeah i mean i think i think a a couple things that come to mind as you're talking there too Uh, you know i think the marathon the longer the race i would say kind of the the in some ways like in some ways it's easier to me to negative split a longer race than a shorter race and, and honestly yeah there's more exactly there's more way we're that you have way more bandwidth and and time to make up for starting off slower you know and i think you know generally the argument around slower races right is or excuse me shorter races is that you know when you're talking about like kind of 5ks and under there's really not a benefit to trying to negative split there's mm-hmm. it's really you know trying to run it's running hard and it's and it's doing it in a way that you don't give too much back as the race goes on right yeah. so so i think you know point b but either way you know there's a lot of it is understanding how to pace right and in two very different ways so i think in the marathon the hardest part is to know that you are running slower than your goal race pace for a hour plus you know like the whole first half of the marathon to me or at least for me, and generally not for everybody I coach, but for most people that I coach, I want them to run that slower than goal race pace. And, you know, and and I definitely don't want anybody running faster in the first half than goal race pace. So, yeah. 
you know, so I think just knowing that you're kind of like, oh man, like each mile ticks by and you look down and you're like, oh man, like my goal is to run six minute miles or, you know, like I said, or, or 559 mile, you know, it's like, and I'm, and that mile was a 608. My next mile is a 607. And, you know, it's like, yes. And you yeah. just start, you know, it gets in your head like, oh man, like, but I think again, you get enough experience in it and you realize that you've got plenty of time to make that up, um, you know, in the second half of a marathon. And really a marathon is all about, you know, it's energy partitioning, right? Like, I mean, it is, it is making sure that you have enough, you know, you have enough glucose still in the, you have enough glucose in the system as far as you have enough liver glycogen left in the system to pull from late in the race. Yeah. And that you've got, you know, your, you know, your nutrition strategy in the race is going to, you know, also obviously play a role in what's Mm -hmm. available. Um, especially if you want to be running, you know, like for me in the second half of marathons, I want to be running, you know, like five high five forties, low five fifties. Right. So, you know, so at that point, if I don't have, you know, if I don't have that, that, that energy storage left and I don't have the right nutrition strategy um, and hydration strategy in place, then that's not going to happen. Right. So, so, I mean, I think, I think part of it is just understanding that if you go out too hard, you just simply burn up too much of your, you know, stored uh, you know, store carbohydrates. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that's really kind of where the wall quote unquote comes into play, right. As people talk about hitting a wall, you know, it's like, to me, the wall just means that you didn't, you ran dumb, you know, you ran yeah. too fast and, and you have nothing left. There's, you know, you're just, you're flat out of, uh, you know, stored glycogen at that point. Yeah. And the only glucose you're going to be getting is going to be coming in through, you know, goose and, and, and hydration, you know, Gatorade or whatever it might be. And that's not going to be enough to keep you running fast. And so your body's going to ultimately put the regulator on. It's going to force you back into more of an aerobic state. Yeah. Well, even, you know, I guess you're always going to be in aerobic state at that kind of distance, but it's going to, that percentage game is going to shift. Your access to speed is going to start to dissipate. Yeah. And then you couple that with the breakdown that's happening within the muscle. Um, and the nervous system, there's so much fatigue on the body at that point. Um, the pain is setting in. So, you know, yeah. you combine all these things and it leads to a really shitty final 10 K for oh, yeah. most people in the marathon. And they kind of view that as the wall. And like I said, I view that as being bad race strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, if you're dying and slowing down the last 10 K, well, then you ran too fast. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I always kind of get a laugh out of, you know, you know, just, people who kind of talk about, well, I was, I was, I ran, you know, at, at mile 18, I was on pace for blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, well, but it's a 26.2 mile race. So who cares what pace you were on at mile 18? I was leading, you know, we like, were leading the football game yeah, like, in the fourth quarter started. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. well, there's still like, 25% left. I mean, I need to go, I could go <laughs> blow myself out in the first round and be like, I was on Kip Chobie's pace, you know, through mile one and then yeah. the wheels fell off and I, you know, was dead. You know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's, it, the race is 26.2, right? So it's like, you've got to learn how to pace appropriately. And I think, and then, you know, to me, you know, being able to scale that downwards into shorter races and, and the need for pacing is different, right? Because you're not going to worry about energy storage. Yeah. You're really going to learn what you're really going to have to worry about is the buildup of various, you know, metabolites as mm-hmm. you are running really hard, right? So if you're yeah. racing on an 800, you know, you've got to worry about hydrogen ion buildup in the muscle cell, right? That's going to start to bleed away at your ability to fire muscle effectively. And, you know, that's that heavy dead legged, you know, oh, yeah. what often gets attributed to lactic acid, right? Lactic right. acid, you know, we produce 
lactic acid, it, it, it is actually a really efficient energy source for the body um, that we're very good at recycling. Um, but a byproduct of that, of that metabolism is hydrogen ion, mm-hmm. and that builds up in the muscle cell. And that eventually erodes your capacity for high output. So if you go out and run really hard in a mile, which you and I both are familiar with, um, you know, that first year that we met, we got yeah. to go, we got to go run a fast mile around the mm-hmm. track. You get to feel what real pain is of that, of that buildup, right? What, yeah. what that feels like. And, and you can see why that pain will shut you down early yeah. if you do not pace correctly, mm-hmm. right? If you go too hard in the first 800, you will not achieve the time that you want to race in the second 800 if if that effort's too hard, right? Yeah. So it's that fine line of pushing right up to the edge, but not going over, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's that's the thing of shorter races is it's pushing right up to the edge and you might you might go over just at the end, but you need to go over late enough that that finish line is close enough. Really yeah. close, mm-hmm. exactly. Because if it's only halfway, it's game over. So, so I would say from a pacing standpoint, the marathon, the hardest part, negative splitting a marathon is your own mind and what your mind's telling you. Because you're not really in pain in the first half either. Right. That's the other thing is that you feel good, right? So you're you're ten k hard to hold that. Yeah, you're ten k into a marathon. Everybody's you know running you know like bats out of hell. Everybody's caught up in the adrenaline. And, you know, for me, it's like, I'm trying to find my Zen, you know, like I'm just trying to relax. I'm trying to feel good. I'm trying to feel mm-hmm. smooth. I'm not thinking about a race yet. Like I said, I think about that first half as, as a, as a warm up to the race that starts at halfway. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, like I said, you get down into these shorter races and you got to just learn how to hurt and you got to learn how to ride that fine line. Mm-hmm. Pacing is going to be different. It may not necessarily be negative splitting, but a lot of it is discipline around what you're willing to tolerate physically and mentally and yeah. making sure that you understand what your body's capable of. What's going on code listeners, Dr. Andrew fix here. And I want to tell you about our friends at element element makes a tasty electrolyte drink with everything that you need and nothing that you don't. That means the science backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. And that's why I use it. I've been taking Element for two years now, and I absolutely love the stuff, and I wouldn't want to exercise without it. For all of you code listeners and friends of Physio Room, Element's offered a special to you guys, and I want you to take advantage of it. Go ahead and visit drinkelement.com slash physioroom. That's drinklmnt.com slash physioroom to receive that special offer. You're going to get a free variety pack with any purchase that you place, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. Thanks so much. You know, it's funny that you say like, you know, people will tell the story of, oh, I was on pace for X, Y, and Z, 18, 20 miles in, and then I hit the wall, then I bonked or whatever. And it's like, you know, no matter how much they want the solution to why that happens to be like right there, yeah, the problem happened a long time before yeah. that, right? The problem either happened before that in that race yeah. or in their training block or in eating ice cream the night before, right? Yeah. Like. The problem wasn't mile 20. Yeah. It was all of the stuff that compounded before that. Yeah. Or an overest. Yeah, exactly. And that stuff, that stuff kind of compounding in a way that, that allows you to overestimate mm-hmm. your capacity, which yeah. I have 100% been guilty of before a marathon. Yeah. I mean, the day that I blew up was the day that I overestimated my capacity, right? Mm-hmm. I went in, um, I, you know, and I have, I have a decent amount of memory around that training block and I won't, I won't bore you with that story, but, uh, you know, I went in, 
doing some things a little differently around my long run and my tempo runs and i really felt like they were translating and they weren't um, yeah and i completely overestimated what my capacity was and yeah. i paid a heavy price that day and i and i do remember i mean i remember very distinctly and this is probably like oh maybe 2009 or 10 i mean so this is quite some time ago and i remember um i remember those last few miles just being in an immense amount of pain and realizing that i was that i really screwed up that race um and holding on for dear life to the finish line mm-hmm. and that's a shitty feeling in the marathon so yeah. um you know and unfortunately what's kind of you know crazy is i've worked with enough people to realize that there's a lot of people who run every single marathon of their life like that like you know every marathon they've ever run they go out and they just suffer suffer you know in a in a, in a slowing way to the finish line now don't get me wrong even with a negative split i'm suffering but i'm still running fast you know what yeah. i mean like so there's a difference between suffering and still performing and suffering and realizing that your performance is out the window yeah. and now you know all you're doing is trying to hold on to the finish line yeah those are two different feelings and i've been at both um yeah so well that's a yeah and that's a feeling that doesn't doesn't feel good not just from a physical pain standpoint but from a mental standpoint it's totally different if you're suffering and performing well yeah. mentally you're still kind of like fired up you if you're looking that. at your watch and you're like oh yeah exactly that's the time i want to see you're getting that positive reinforcement right? yeah versus Whereas, seeing it yeah add time each mile yeah. you're slowing down yes. as you go and you're giving time back mm-hmm. you know which which you know even in good races where i have negative split you know i've 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 gone, I've gone a little too aggressive, you know, and, and I've had races where the last mile or two miles I've ended mm-hmm. up giving Berlin's an example of this, where, you know, I, I blasted through so much of the second half of that race. Um, you know, and I was running, I mean, at points in that race, I was running, you know, like low to mid five forties through much of the second half. And the last yeah. few miles I started to slip and I run like, a, I believe I ran like a, like a six, like a six minute, maybe like a six Oh eight um last mile and which doesn't sound dramatically slower but you know you think about that versus 542 and that's that's yeah, 30 plus seconds. there you go you know yeah so. well and you sort of mentioned this a little bit ago when you were talking about why well, usually race in the low 170 pounds range yeah and i don't remember the exact statistic but you know like you said most endurance runners weigh much less than that right even if they're taller than you or taller than me like i was always the biggest guy in my 800 meter races there were people that were taller than me but they weren't as wide as i am and um even more so when we start talking about longer distances like the marathon i forget exactly what the time is it's six seconds or if it's two seconds or what the statistic is but there's some metric out there that pretty much says for every pound of body mass that yeah. you have, you speed, run then, like yeah. two seconds slower per yeah. mile. And um, but one of the ways that you can try to combat that is to have your body mass be more comprised of muscle, yeah. as opposed to having added weight on your frame that's you know not producing producing movement. So I kind of view you as like you're basically like a hybrid athlete, mm-hmm. right? You maintain muscle mass, but yet still do endurance stuff. You still do power producing activities, resistance training, and things. But one thing that I know, if you're running 90 miles a week, and some of these uh, running endurance athletes or triathletes are putting in hours and hours worth of endurance training on a weekly basis, um, strength training is not always part of the equation, Mm -hmm. right? I know a lot of runners, I get the opportunity to work with them, though I don't enjoy that they're hurting. Um, I work with a lot of runners that have running-related injuries, 
And I ask them what, what they do outside of running. And oftentimes the answer is nothing, mm -hmm. no mobility work, no strength training. So let's start to dive into that topic a little bit and it has strength training. And I remember when you started to get into fitness, you were lifting weights. Mm -hmm. Um, but during your, you know, endurance running career during your marathon running career, has strength training always been a component mm -hmm. of your training regimen? And why do you think so many running athletes or endurance athletes are not necessarily participating in strength training? Um, and let's start talking on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, couple, so a couple thoughts there. I, I've always, um, I've always kind of wondered how accurate that whole idea of like, you know, for every one pound of body weight, you lose. Yeah, because I've i read that as well. Probably a very and, big generalization. Yeah, right. And and I've always, and I do, I always kind of wonder like, okay, well, what does that mean in relation to like proportional strength and, yep. you know, and, and things like that, right? So um, I do think obviously going in, you know, not carrying around, you know, too much excess body fat is obviously going to be advantageous to performance, right? So yep. like that, you know, that's that that I think is kind of the, you know, that's going to be obviously widely accepted. You know, then from there, you know, how much muscle mass? I mean, obviously the thing with muscle mass is it has to be fed, right? So yeah. it's like it's expensive. So it's expensive, yeah, metabolically, right? So it's so it's it, you know, if you're racing, you know, even if you're, you know, from you know, it's like you're whatever muscle mass you're carrying, you know, in your upper body even though your upper body's not necessarily obviously doing a ton of work in a marathon, it's still, you know, muscle that your body has to fuel. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously there's always an equation, you know, there's always a, a, a part of the process there is going to be, you know, just strength, lean muscle mass, body fat, how much does strength kind of cancel out that weight on the scale kind of thing. Right. Um, and you know, I don't know the exact answers to it. Um, I know that strength training has always been important to me. Um, and that kind of goes back to, you know, the early years of me getting into fitness and yeah. not to dive down this rabbit hole, but just, you know, basically, you know, I was not a runner in my younger, you know, in, in, you know, in, in growing up as a young kid, I was highly active. I got away from being active, you know, kind of moving into later, latter part of middle school and into the first part of high school. Um, and, you know, really became sedentary and, and, and kind of fat, you know, and just not a really healthy kid. And so as I started to get into fitness, you know, the aesthetics aspect point aspect of it was important to mm -hmm. me because I was not confident in my body, um, and not confident in, you know, myself in a lot of ways, um, because of how I physically looked and how I felt. Um, so I say all that because that early on in my early twenties in particular was a big part of why I weightlifted. I didn't weightlift because it was an improve, it was improving my running or even something that I felt like I needed to do to run. Yeah. I did it because I wanted to look good with my shirt off and I didn't want to be a skinny runner. You know? yeah. So like, um, you know, I wanted to have muscle. And so, you know, that those things being important to me were, were why I kind of lifted. And then as I got older and learned more, I realized that lifting wasn't about just, you know, kind of looking, you know, muscular, but it was about, you know, being, you know, being able to utilize it in a way that was going to benefit my lifting. Um, and my lifting today looks dramatically different than it did, you know, in my late teens, as I was getting into it and in my early twenties and really through my mid twenties, probably it wasn't until my latter half of my twenties that I started to, you know, kind of go down the path that I'm on now and starting that kind of journey. Um, 
of using lifting to build a more robust body as a whole to translate that to running, right? So like one of the things that I always say to the runners that I work with is I don't necessarily argue that lifting directly translates to making you a better runner. Now, I do think that being proportionally strong is important and that probably can help you be a better runner to some degree. I don't know the exact, you know, I don't know exactly how much, right? And it probably varies on the individual. You know, you look at some very famous strength coaches, like people like Ryan Flaherty who worked with Meb when Meb won Boston, you know, Ryan uh, talked about this many years ago on various podcasts, you know, about making Meb essentially as proportionally strong as possible. And he had a very, he had a very distinct kind of approach and methodology to that. Um, A lot of which, you know, I have tried to emulate with the runners that I work with um, and myself as well. And, you know, the idea essentially is gain proportional strength. So create better efficiencies from a strength standpoint, but not looking to put on muscle mass, right? And I haven't put on muscle mass in years. I mean, I, you know, essentially looked the same now for, you know, I don't know, you know, like probably since I was like 24, you know, like I've looked pretty similar 23, 24 years old. I don't think my body's changed that much aesthetically, um, but I'm stronger now than I was then in a total body sense. Um, And so my point is, is proportionately I've gotten stronger, you know, my deadlift stronger, my squat stronger, et cetera, these kind of compound movements that are going to display my body's ability to move weight um, in a very organized fashion. And to me, that is going to then help build that proportional strength. Now, that proportional strength, I think, has a benefit to speed and performance. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, and I think probably the most, I think the most important aspect of strength training is when it comes to running is strength training. It, like I said, it builds a more robust body. So it builds a body that can great, that can tolerate the demands of running training more effectively. If caveat if the strength training is um, utilized and and done in in an appropriate manner, right? So so to me, I want strength training to restore the body from running, not to further its breakdown from running, right? Mm -hmm. So, and what I mean by that is, I think there are some runners, most runners to your point, or many runners to your point, don't do any strength training at all, or they do really strength training that, you know, no offense to these people, but just doesn't do anything, right? Like yeah. it's, you know, it's it's very, very lightweight. It's very, very high rep. It's it's things that, not that there's not maybe some point of that stuff, like that that can be part of your strength training program, but if you're not getting your body under some substantial load, yeah. then, then to me, you're not getting that restorative quality of lifting. Yeah. And that's where using, you know, appropriate um, training percentages from how much weight you're lifting, how many reps, the volume in particular is, you know, wildly important in my opinion, um, especially when you get into a, you know, closer to performance. So whether it's yeah. a marathon, you're getting closer to a race day, or if it's working with cross country athletes and they're in the season, how much volume, how much strength training are they doing in season versus out of season? How do we approach that? Um, you know, and then another thing that we work on here immensely at Lions Den is movement quality, right? And and that really is kind of born out of me finding um, Kelly Starrett and becoming a supple leopard, you know, way back when, uh, when that book first came out, you know, and that was really, that, that was kind of the start for me of reorganizing the way that I 
thought of shrimp, thought about shrimp training, right? Yeah. Um, so, so in here, you know, and for myself, we really focus on high movement quality and how movement quality itself translates to running, which is a whole nother aspect of this, um, you know, which we're probably running out of time, but yeah. that, like, that's a whole nother part of conversation that we can have maybe another time. Um, you know, and then, and then, like I said, the proportional strength mm-hmm. and then the restorative nature of lifting when used appropriately. Right. Yeah. So, so by that, I mean, running takes a massive toll on the system. It's highly repetitive in a yeah. very restricted range of motion. It's hard from a, you know, you, there's not a lot of, you know, it's, it's a taker in a lot of ways from a hormonal standpoint, yep. um, especially when your volume's high. Um, and you know, and, and, and there's a lot of hard efforts in your, in your weeks and your months. Um, so, you know, lifting, as we all know, is, is very beneficial for a, you know, positive hormonal response. Um, so using lifting to, to, to help elicit those responses, um, making sure that we're supporting ourselves nutritionally is obviously a huge part of this conversation as well. For sure. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think that's kind of where I think the strength training is, you know, using some compound movements, you know, the, the, the real approach that I use is, is compound movements for overall strength. And we've got a couple of different tactics and, and approaches that we use with those, depending on where athletes are in their training block or whether they're in season, um, again, kind of taking some from, you know, the various gurus of this stuff, the, the, the Jedi masters, as I call them, you know, in, in our field, um, you know, the, the stuff that I've learned over the years using various tactics and approaches there. Um, training stability so making sure that our you know athletes understand what stable positions are um getting runners out of their shoes that's another huge part of this conversation so getting bottom of the mecha- bottom of the chain mechanics um really um uh understood strong connected to the ground etc um you know so so you know we 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 didn't even, you know, we've talked about weight and body weight and how that might translate to racing. You know, now you've got the super shoe movement, which, yeah. you know, I've yet to race in the super shoe, but at some point maybe I will. And I'm curious what they feel like, because, you know, they're, you know, apparently, you know, they obviously have done amazing things to, to the world record. So, you know, point being is you've got these other, you know, kind of things at play, right? So, um, but in here, we're going to get people out of their shoes um, and, and work on that from a strength training standpoint. And then some sort of st- speed component, something that's going to mm-hmm. connect the connect chain that's not super technically demanding. Um, I don't think runners, young runners or any runners, maybe, um, you know, unless it is a goal of theirs to learn how to do, you know, more complicated technical lifts with a barbell really need to be doing you know, complicated barbell lifts, you know, Mm -hmm. like I think if they can squat and they can do the various, you know, versions of squatting and they can deadlift proficiently with a barbell, that's probably all they need to do. And we can, we can check the speed box with things like kettlebells with way less technical demand that are still going to connect a lot of that kinetic chain aspect and get that motor control doing the things that we want it to do. Um, you know, without the, without having the, to get over that hurdle of, of learning the movement skill that is mm-hmm. some more complex barbell movements, um, which by the way, I think barbell movements are, you know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, we watched two very proficient individuals in our gym, yeah, um, sure. and you're pretty damn proficient and I love playing around with it, but you know, I'm not that good at it, but I like, you know, I like playing around with, you know, power cleans and hang cleans and things like that. And there might be some athletes where that's appropriate. Um, 
some runners where that's appropriate based on what their movement mechanics look like. But for a lot of people, I think there's no point in rushing them to that. Yeah. I think we can check that box with things that are less technically demanding. So I think if we touch on strength, stability, and a little bit of speed, we do it in a barefoot environment. So we're building a strong foundation, then, you know, we're checking a lot of boxes, doing a lot of good. Well, I think sort of what you're saying, and I forget exactly how long ago it was relative to when this podcast will air, but I did a shorter episode on strength training for runners where I sort of like talked about some of that stuff. But I think kind of what you're touching on is let's not replicate the exact same energy systems, neurological oh, effects yeah. that you're doing yeah. in your dis- your distance endurance effort running yeah. in your strength training. It turns out you already have a lot of capacity for high rep if you're a liar. Yeah, right. That makes like, sense. You should be yeah. able to knock out 50, 100 yeah. body weight squats yeah. if you are running for miles yeah. doing a mini single leg squats over yeah. and over and over again. And, and what adaptation are you really getting from right. that? Right. Like that would be my question is it's like, okay, so what are we, what is our, what is our, you know, yeah, you get a good workout, but is that workout translating to more robustness as a yeah. whole? And for me, I feel like, no, probably not. You know, like, I think lifting, slowing it down, less reps, heavier weight, yep. you know, and again, we're not talking like max percentages here. Like a lot, you know, a lot of time, you know, especially with the kids when we're in season, I mean, these kids don't go over, you know, generally 50, maybe 60% of their max effort mm-hmm. from a weight perspective. And, you know, especially when races are important, they're only lifting maybe 30, you know, 30, 35, 40% of their max effort weight. And you know, we're, we're still stimulating what we need to stimulate, right? Yeah. We're still getting, we're still, we're, we're checking the appropriate strength boxes there. Yep. doesn't need to be anything crazy, but they're doing that for, you know, they're doing that for four to six, maybe eight reps on certain lifts. <clears throat> they're not doing it for 25 or 20. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, kind of what we're talking about is like, let's try to get you the best bang for your buck in your strength training. Let's tap into systems that you're not doing in your running and let's do it do it in a way that complements your running so that it doesn't just like break down the system more you're talking about building a more robust body that um, can tolerate the demands of running and one thing that we know from like an injury perspective is you're talking about like loading with actual challenging weight well muscles and tendons Mm -hmm. when they are injured respond to loading right Mm -hmm. What they don't respond to is just constantly being stretched down and tugged on or having really, really light resistance for a many, many, many repetitions. That might be okay for a blood flow effect. But if you're trying to repair and heal that tendon, say the Achilles or or whatever that might be, shin splints or something, uh, you need to load and you need to strengthen that tendon under a heavy load for less reps, more duration um, of, of like holding that isometric to get that response. Um, yeah, I mean, I so think, yeah, that all makes great sense. Yeah. And I think that's that kind of restorative nature of yeah. it. Right. And then moving through these fuller ranges of motion, things like that. Um, many years ago, um, you know, uh, back to Simon and I, we had a very short lived podcast together, um, where we were incredibly fortunate to interview some really awesome people for like six or seven episodes. And then we quit cause we were, I don't know. We just were dumb. We should have kept it going. Fine. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we got, I think we got one turn down and we were like, oh, we're, you know, we're out, we're done. Yeah. That person said, no, we're never doing this again. Um, but anyway, point being is we had, we have Brian McKenzie on there and mm-hmm. Brian McKenzie is another guy who I've followed now for years and read his books and love his content. And, um, and so we got to talk to him and 
I remember him kind of bringing up the point, or he said something to the effect of, you know, kind of squatting, lifting, et cetera. And, and I've used this now for, you know, since that, and that was, you know, since that was probably 12 years ago, this conversation happened 10 years ago. Anyway, he said something to the effect of, you know, that, that running is running is not like kind of a normative, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that is restoring movement capacity, right? You're winding the system up. So then when we come in, and, you know, you and I both talk to people about warming up with full working through full ranges of motion and cooling down, working through full ranges of motion. And mm-hmm. then when we come in here and lift, we're working through as full of range of motion as they can quality as they, yes, as they can work through in a, in, in a, um, in a, in a, in a proficient manner. Um, and, you know, he, he says, you know, that you are restoring movement capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines is what he said to us and, and, and restoring that movement capacity is something that we've, um, um, really, you know, that, that I've hooked onto since, you know, the, the time he said that, um, you know, and, and really restoring kind of that tissue function, um, is a huge part of the, is a huge part of this. And, you know, and, and, and again, that's where strength training becomes massively Mm -hmm. beneficial is we can restore tissue function in a way that, you know, Again, running is an unbelievable form of exercise, and it does so much of us from a, so much for us from a cardiorespiratory standpoint. But if you're doing it at a high level, and especially if you're trying to do it at a high level in a marathon, there's insane amount of repetition that just you know it's hard to argue is really quote unquote good for us, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of good that running can do for us, but a lot of that can be accomplished, you know in runs that are one hour and under, you know, and most people that are running marathons are not running one hour under, you know, for very much of their training. Right. So they're mostly one hour and over Mm -hmm. and, you know, that becomes highly, highly repetitive. So we've got to, we've got to think strategically and, and think, you know, in, in ways that, you know, for some runners may seem counter to yep. what makes sense, but we've got to think in ways that are going to restore that tissue function. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it because, you know, it, that was actually the term that you used was tissue, tissue function, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You're, you're taking the opportunity to, like you said, work through those full ranges of motion, allow the tissues to do what they're capable of doing. Because when we're running, you're, like you said, it's extremely repetitive in a very short range of motion. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not using the full capacity of your your joints and your tissues that you have. And if you don't take that opportunity to do that, well, then what are you what are you pairing together? You're sleeping in a relatively static position. Mm -hmm. Most people work a relatively static job Mm -hmm. or career. You sit at a desk or or in a car or something, not using your tissues to their full range of motion. And then you run or you bike or you do some other endurance activity where you're just doing this highly repetitive, very um, small range motion activity. And then our body starts to only know how to move in that pattern or in that range. Right. And, and, and and just to say too, it's not that we never strength train in short, in those ranges either. Right. So, so one thing that we've incorporated in, in recent years in particular is, is strength training in ranges that look very akin to running, yeah. but it's not all of our strength training, right? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 we are still for much of our strength training, we are focused on full ranges of motion. And then there are some aspects where we're going to say, especially again, for some of these high level cross country runners we work with, we're going to look at that and say, okay, let's, let's work very specifically on some very specific ranges of motion, strengthening these ranges of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, these are kids now who have worked with me for years yeah. and have, really strong uh you know they have a lot of good 
movement uh, uh, understanding at this point, and we're able to really kind of get into some more nuanced stuff. Um, yeah. You know, for most runners, I would argue that they don't probably need to worry about that right out of the gate. They just need to worry about getting some consistent quality strength training in, mm-hmm. especially adult runners, you know, I mean, in particular. Uh, yeah. Just because so many of them, and you and I see them, we've been them, yeah. um, you know, are broken. You know, it's like, you know, just running is running is hard. Yeah. It's hard on the body. So, well, and I'd like to preface this with, um, you know, stay tuned for a future episode on this because we will not have time to dive deep into this topic um, because we're about to go coach a strength training class yeah. for runners, yeah. uh, as a matter of fact. But one thing you just said, like, we've had injuries. A lot of endurance runners we've worked with have been like broken, dealt with chronic injuries over their running career. And what seems to be a trend that we're finding, right, is this concept of, how you feel yourself mm-hmm. and how you allow your body to repair from the demands of the activity that you're putting it through um, and by what you're putting into your body. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about goos and gels and stuff like during races, mm-hmm. but to give like a very broad overarching theme, like what are some of the major problems that you see with runners from a nutrition standpoint mm-hmm. and from a really high level, like what are some of the highlights that you think runners should be trying to accomplish or change in their nutrition strategies knowing that we can't like dive real deep into the weeds on this but like what are some of the trends that you see in how you think people should go about trying to uh, address these things yeah um we should definitely part two soon or part three i guess but um because we we should do a deep dive on this but i think in a very general sense you know the thing that you have heard you know your questions that you have heard we both talked to a lot of people about um but i probably blabber on a little bit more about, uh you know in 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 a training sense obviously because that's you know where i'm spending the majority of my time you know is 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 protein and the need for more protein um i think that a lot of runners um are obsessed with you know carbohydrate um which is great and you know i have experimented with so many different approaches to nutrition over the years and like i said next time maybe let's dive down that rabbit hole and we can get into some good conversation there um i think all three of the macronutrients are highly important aspects of a runner's diet um, you know protein fat and carbohydrates um, but i think that we must get runners to think through the lens of protein first in my opinion um because it is the building block right and it is it is what allow it's it's so much of the support it's what supports the system it's what supports uh regrowth and and uh you know and and repairs you know our broken down tissue um so you know i think protein is is probably the the number one kind of general thing that i see that a lot of runners are under proteined Mm -hmm. a lot of people are under proteined Again, this has been a big focus yeah. of what you and I talked to a lot of people about. Um, so that would be one. And then I'd say two is probably just not enough food in general yeah. um, is another thing. Um, again, I've probably been guilty of that in years past um, as well, um, you know, playing with various approaches. But I think it's easy um, for runners to just be really fat adapted uh, for, you know, depending on what their diet's like. And if the more fat adapted you become, you know, I have found that runners tend to have less appetite. 
Um, and if that appetite isn't there and they don't have a good routine around what their food looks like every day, it's easy just to start skipping meals. And next yeah. thing you know, you're, you know, you're running, you know, at a catabolic state that isn't supporting your system effectively at all. Mm-hmm. And you're just breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. Um, so I would say, you know, those are kind of the two main things right now that we're working on. Um, and then just not like prop, you know, honestly, probably not. And I think there's a lot of nuance here and a lot of conversation to be had here. And I think we're talking about the running population specifically, because I have different feelings on these kind of topics based on the individual. But if we're talking about running populations in particular, it's it's not removing any macronutrient. You know, it is that they are all a very important aspect of our life. And, you know, I think there's like I said, there's a lot of conversation to be had around you know, maybe somebody who's sedentary and is doing no exercise and, you know, and, and kind of pulling some levers on macronutrients, there might be um, some benefit to, to, to looking at those things for them. But if we're talking about runners specifically, um, you know, it, it is, it is putting a huge priority around protein and then not, um, you know, not taking away from, you know, not, uh, and, and you know the other thing too is I think kind of feeling out your own individuality around food too, like what you respond well to and what you don't. I think some runners do require a, a lot of carbohydrate to function at a high level, and I think some runners can you know function at a high level on less. Um, I think very few runners can function on none uh, yeah. or very little um, at a high level from a speed standpoint. Maybe ultra endurance stuff. There's a different conversation to have there. Um, but I think if you're talking about you know again even up to the marathon and you're trying to run that fast. I think it's very difficult to do on very little carbohydrate, yeah. but I think some people, and I think I probably fall into this camp, can do it on you know low to moderate amount of low to moderate amounts of carbohydrate. And other people, you know, I've had training partners and friends over the years that eat way more carbohydrate than I do, and they're very fast. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and so you know, point being is, I think there's individuality there for sure. Um, but if we're thinking again, kind of that broad general term. Let's look at protein. Let's look at overall caloric intake, making sure you're supporting that system, um, making sure you're supporting both performance and recovery. Awesome. Yeah. Well, for all of you guys that tuned in to this episode with Tristan Mitchell to listen to us talk about Tristan's running career, strength training, nutrition for runners, stay tuned for a future episode where we're going to dive a bit more deeply into that fueling strategy conversation. But um, let's get into Fuel, I think, foot and ankle. We can talk yes. about some of that stuff. Um, and stable positions from a strength training standpoint, how they translate. Absolutely. I, I think it's great topics. All things that I still want to talk about, but we've already been here for so long. <laughs> I think I think those things sound great, and I would like to get into those too. So please stay tuned for another episode on the code with Tristan where we can dive into those things. Now, if this episode brought up more questions for you, I would love for you guys to ask those. So in the show notes for this, you're going to see all the contact information for Tristan Mitchell and for myself that you normally see. Please reach out to us if you have questions on these things. And then if this brought up some um, some positive feelings for you, please go share those things in a review. You've heard me say this before. The way that we can keep this show going, get more awesome guests on here and continue to spread this message to more and more people is to go leave those reviews, share the uh, the you know things that you enjoyed so that we can read those and make sure we keep getting episodes out that you want to hear about. Again, however you listen to this, thanks for being here. Tristan, thanks for being here. Thanks, we'll, we'll catch you guys next time on an episode of The Code. Thanks so much. Thanks.